Now, nearly a thousand years before this incident in 2 Samuel, God had promised his people that the scepter would not depart from Judah. He said that in Genesis chapter 29. God has a way of keeping his promises, a way that every single one of them is kept. And we tend to be people that are very impatient, waiting for God to keep his promises. Philip Brooks, who wrote the famous hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem, was a giant of a man in the 18th century, six foot four inches tall. He was a scholar of Harvard. One day, he was pacing around in his home with impatience and anxieties. And a friend of him who said to him, I, I never knew you were like that. What's the problem? And Philip Brooks looked at him. He said, the problem is this. I am in a hurry to get something done, but God isn't in a hurry. And you know, that's so true of all of our lives. King David was a man who was always in a hurry, if you noticed. Lots of energy, lots of passion, never apathetic, always involved in this and that, always building, always going out to war, coming in from war, always leading in worship, always organizing the administration of his nation, always planning the next thing for his people and for his family. And yet, David's life was often characterized by long pauses where God taught him patience to wait for God's time. And God's timetable is often not the same as our timetable. That becomes a big problem for us all. We know from our own childhood and having children of our own that one of the signs of immaturity is impatience, isn't it? You go for a journey in the car with children and they'll always ask the question, how, how long? Are we there yet? And we smile to ourselves because we know it's a sign of immaturity, isn't it? And in the Christian life, when we become impatient with God's timetable, it's a sign of spiritual immaturity in your life and in my life. And King David had to learn to wait on God. And he waited for a long time. From the moment Samuel took the oil and anointed him till he became king was probably close to 20 years. For about a dozen years, he was on the run from King Saul, we believe. And then we read in this chapter that he was 30 years of age when he began to reign, but he only reigned in Hebron, or Hevron as the Jews call it, seven and a half years. So he had to wait, even when he became king of Judah, God made him wait another seven and a half years. Plus the 12 years or so he was on the run from King Saul. So probably around 20 years, God made this man wait before he fulfilled the promise that one from the tribe of Judah would reign over this nation. And the one from the tribe of Judah was the one after his own heart, David, that he revealed to Samuel on that day. Now you do the mass as you read this chapter. David reigned for 40 years. Saul reigned for 40 years. Solomon reigned for 40 years. But David waited, unlike Saul, for probably 20 years before he became king. And the promise was fulfilled. And God was working on him, molding and shaping him to prepare him 
to become not just the king of Israel, but the greatest king that Israel ever had in its earthly time as a nation. Now, as you read this chapter, you'll discover that the devil had thrown everything to stop David becoming king. He had raised up Saul, who tried to murder him on many occasions. He had raised up the Philistines and other enemies that David had to fight against as the head of Saul's army. He'd raised up Goliath. He had raised up Ishbosheth and Abner and others who tried to resist David becoming the king of Israel. But in God's time, in God's place, in God's great program, we come to this Second Samuel chapter 5 where we read that God is now going to fulfill the promise he made a thousand years before in Genesis chapter 29. God is now going to fulfill the promise he made to David through the oil and the words of Samuel almost 20 years before. And now David is going to step forward and become the king of this great nation. Verse 1 tells us that David didn't begin this process. In fact, as you read King David's life, you read the life of Daniel, reread the life of Joseph, you read the life of Ruth, you'll discover that none of them played politics to get themselves advanced. None of them advertised. None of them joined a PR agency. All of them let God braise them up in his time and in his place. And David patiently waited, and it wasn't easy for a man of his passion and energy and enthusiasm to wait. I'm sure he knew that he was the right man for the job. I'm sure he knew he had the talents that God had given him and what talents he had. He was charismatic. He was courageous. He was a leader of men. He had experience leading the armies of the nation. He was a brilliant administrator. He was a poet. He was a musician. On top of all that, if that wasn't enough, he was a very handsome man. So he had all these characteristics and talents and gifts that God poured out upon him. And yet God just made him wait and wait and wait and wait. And now how the moment comes, David doesn't rush into it. He just lets God guide him to this pinnacle. And he let all the tribes come to David. And they came to David in Hebron. Now Hebron was really his capital at that time in the kingdom of Judah and Benjamin that he reigned over. And they said to David these words, and in many ways these were false words, hypocritical words. Because for seven and a half years, these men had resisted David becoming the king. They had preferred Abner and Ishbosheth. But now they come to David. David has to handle them wisely and carefully and prudently. And they come with this nice terms and and they throw a little bit of God's name in it sprinkle a little bit of spirituality and they say to David behold we are thy bone and thy flesh well that's not what they said before they didn't want someone from Judah certainly the Benjamites they wanted to reign and the Ephraimites wanted to reign but now they come to David and say oh we're we're all friends we're all family and then they go on in verse 2 and it says in time past when Saul was king over us Thou wast he that ledest us out and broughtest in Israel. In other words, they said to David, we remember when you were younger. David's now 37, almost 40. But we remember when you were even in your teenage years, 
that you led the armies. You fought Goliath and then you were so successful that King Saul, who himself was a giant of a man, almost seven feet tall most likely, a man from the warrior tribe Benjamin, he appointed you, David, the, the little teenager, to lead all the armies. The Bible tells us David behaved himself wisely as the teenage commander-in-chief of the armies of Israel. And David had a 100% success rate. Whatever enemy he faced, he defeated. No one ever overcame him in battle. And these men now, older men, maybe older than David, the elders of the nation, they came from the other ten tribes that had rejected David, and they said, we remember, David, how, how successful you were, how, how charismatic you were, how talented you were, and how you went in and out, and you led us in every battle, and you won every war, and how wise you were. And then they said this, and the Lord said, and they used the word Jehovah there, where you see the word Lords in capitals in your King James translation, it's telling you they're using the word Jehovah, Yahweh. The covenant-keeping God. The God who keeps his promises. And they said, we remember how the faithful Jehovah said this. Thou shalt be a captain over Israel. So they throw in the spirituality. They throw in the experience. David's uh, reputation. And then they throw in the family relationship. We're bone and flesh together. Now it would be very easy for David to rub their noses in it at this point. And said to them, huh, what kept you for seven and a half years? He could have also brought up how for the previous 12 years before that, he was a fugitive and they all sneered at him. Turned their backs on him. And believed all the lies that Saul had said about him. This is a great test for David's leadership. How will he react to these people? Will he take revenge? Will he be cynical? Will he react in a negative way to their advances to him and you see how wise he is David just said made a league with them it says in verse 3 before the Lord before the Lord and it says they anointed David king over Israel and let me say this in passing just because you're God's choice doesn't mean everybody will always recognize that Sometimes it will take years, even in a family, for they to respect you. In a church, in a workplace. And in David's case, it took 20 years before the nation, the majority of the nation, were willing to come and stand before God and say, this is God's choice. Now they knew it, because they said themselves, God has chosen you. They knew it years ago. They knew he was their flesh and blood years ago. They knew that he led them in and out of battle years ago. But it took 20 years before they were willing to come and acknowledge it. And there's a little lesson there for us all. Just because someone disrespects you today doesn't mean they'll always think that way about you. You have to be like David. You have to just keep on going. Keep on serving for that 20 years. Keep on being faithful. Keep on being gracious. Keep on being forbearing like David was to these people. Because there may well come a time when God will change the attitude of others toward you. And David very wisely sees the hand of God here. 
God's at work. And he sees the greater picture. And he puts aside all the slights and the grievances and the grudges that so easily could have stirred up in his soul and the chip on his shoulder that he could have went around with. And he just accepts the leadership of this nation. He knows it's God's time and it's God's way and it's God's day. Of course, it's also a reminder to us all, if you know this story, that the Saul's and the Abner's and the Ishbosheths of this world, they have their day. They have the moment in the sun. But in the end, God will have his way. And no matter what they try to do to block David becoming king, in the end, God has his way. And David shows magnanimity, wisdom, grace in his leadership here. He realizes he cannot correct every wrong. You can't solve every problem. You can't change every person. As a leader, all you can do often is set the example by your own behavior. And David does that. And now as he becomes king, his first step in this jubilant moment is, we're told, he, be, he looks for a new capital city. Previously, he had reigned over Judah and Benjamin. Or not, sorry, Judah, Judah and Benjamin. And in that period of time, he had this city called Hebron or Hebron as his capital city. But David knows now he's no longer the king over two tribes. This is the moment he has to become king over all the 12 tribes. And at that place, Hebron is too far away, too remote for all the other tribes to see it as their capital city. But David also recognized that the tribe that had been so loyal to him, Judah, that had stood the test of time with him during those seven and a half years, they needed to be recognized. And very cleverly and very carefully, no doubt prayerfully, David identified the city of Jerusalem as God's city to be the capital of this nation. A city that was so prominent that even today its name is mentioned in news broadcasts all over the world. A city that is so famous that almost everybody has heard of it. A city that is the only city in the world that is, we're told in the scriptures, God will keep the name of it in the new heaven and the new earth. No other city. Belfast will not be there. Dublin will not be there. London will not be there. Or New York will not be there. That we know of. But the Bible says Jerusalem will be there. And God has put his finger on that city. And David begins his reign by showing grace to all sides and wisdom in how he chooses this capital city. And he gives us appeal he says, whoever, verse 8, getteth up to the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites. It was a city that had a wonderful defense system. If you've ever been to Israel and ascended up to Jerusalem, you will know what we're talking about. It's a city that sits up on the hill. A city that has its own water supply. A city that has great defensive positions. A city that all of Israel can look up to for wherever they are and see the great city of Jerusalem and see its spiritual value as well as its financial and economic and defense value. And David issues this challenge. Whoever conquers this city will become chief of staff of my army. I think possibly what David was doing was trying to get rid of Joab. 
thinking that maybe someone else might take this title, this honor. But unfortunately for David, Joab, being a crafty guy and a brilliant tactician, he worked out how to conquer the city of Jerusalem, and he conquers it, we're told in Chronicles. And now David is dwelling, in verse 9, in the city of Jerusalem. And he, the Bible says, verse 10, he became great. He grew great. Now, why was David great? Was it because he was a very wealthy man? Was it because he was a very charismatic man? Certainly was that. He certainly was wealthy. Was it because he was one of the greatest military men in history in a time where military prowess was so important? Certainly true, he was. Was it because of his courage? Well, there were plenty of other courageous people about. There were plenty of other wealthy men about. Was it because of his musical ability? No, there were plenty of other talented musicians around. Well, what was the reason why David became not just a great king, but Israel's greatest king. How was it that the boy, the shepherd boy, whose father didn't even know his name? Old Jesse said, there's a wee fella, we one born late, and he's up on the hillside when Samuel arrived, and he couldn't even barely remember the name of him. How was it that the little boy from the hills of Bethlehem, a nobody from nowhere, became not just a great king, but the greatest king in the history of of the nation of Israel. A king whose name is still famous all over the world today. And the answer is in verse 10. At the end of verse 10 it says, And David went on and grew great. Comma. What's the secret? And the Lord God of hosts was with him. There's the secret. That's why Nebuchadnezzar's name has come and gone. That's why all the Caesars have come and gone. And by and large, their stories are forgotten by most people. That's why the great and the good of this nation has come and gone. And by and large, most people don't even know who Queen Victoria was or King Edward was. We barely know who King Billy was. Isn't that right? But David's name, wherever you go in the world, people know it. People remember it. In fact, when you go to the nation of Israel, which flag is flying? The star of David. His name lives on. And the secret to David, and the secret to any life, to any success in life, especially lasting success, not temporal fame, the secret is found in that verse. And the Lord God of hosts was with him. You know, I'm preaching to a little church here in Akali. It's very easy in a place like this to start to believe that nobody cares. Isn't that right? Nobody knows about you. I had to be honest, I had to look it up. Where is Akali? I've never been here before. Until the other Sunday. I knew it was somewhere near Lisbon. That's about it. And it's very easy in a place like this, in a congregation like this, and let's make it even more personal, in a family like yours in a home like yours where very few people know you and to start to believe that very few people even care that may well be true but ultimately it doesn't matter if you're not known ultimately it doesn't matter if nobody really cares 
as long as you can say, like David said at the end of verse 10, that the Lord is with me. God knows me. God cares about me. God is interested in me. As long as all that matters is that this congregation is a congregation that God knows, that God is interested in, that this ministry that goes forth from here is one that pleases him, that honors him, that will last the breadth of time. And King David became great because David had a great God. His kingdom grew in a very short time from 6,000 square miles to 60,000 square miles. Imagine that. Saul handed David a wreck, a train wreck of a kingdom. Destroyed. No army. Destroyed by the Philistine. No economy. No temple. No tabernacle worth talking about. No spiritual leadership. He left the nation ruined. But when God brought David to the throne, in a very short time, because God was with him, David was able to accomplish so much. That's why today when you go to the nation of Israel, even amongst the secular Jews, very few of them look back to the reign of King Saul with any fondness or affection. Even though Saul reigned 40 years, same length of time as David, David's reign stands out amongst all the others because God was with him. God was working through him. Now, one last thing that you have to notice about David's life. Not only was God with him, God blessing him, verse 11 and 12 tells us that God began to build his reputation. People like King Hiram started to notice. And that's always what happen. As God begins to work in your life, in your home, in your workplace, in your church, in your community, others will start to see. You don't need to hire Sachi and Sachi to be your advertising agency. People will start to see. God's with you. God's working with you. If you have time when you go home today, just read Genesis chapter 37 and 38 and read how God began to get people to notice Joseph wherever he went. Everywhere Joseph went, people noticed this guy's different. His work ethic's different. His values are different. His faith is different. Read Daniel chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 6 and see how people noticed that Daniel was different. That he was someone that lived a different way, had different values, different ambitions, without him having to advertise it. And David doesn't advertise the work of God, but God advertises it for him. People notice. People began to bless him and assist him. But I said one last thing, and here's the point. Not only will God notice you, God bless you, and God raise you up, but of course the devil is also watching. And as you read the rest of this chapter, you'll discover that Satan is trying to get a David in his home, through his multiple marriages, his polygamous relationships. And what a disaster that proved for David in the home. And the sad tragedy of it all is this, that David was a great leader, a father to the nation, the shepherd, the sweet shepherd, the sweet psalmist of Israel. A man who left us with an incredible breadth of literature to encourage us in the dark days in the book of Psalms. 
And yet David's own children were some of the worst children, not just in the Bible, but in history. The irony of it all is Saul's sons were more loyal to him than David's sons were. So Satan is getting at David through the area that David thought was a strength, his passion. And David had uncontrolled passions when it came to women. And Satan noticed that. And of course it led eventually when he was in his 50s to his greatest sin and downfall with Bathsheba. But Satan also was stirring up trouble for David not just in the home. But outside the nation. Because as you read the rest of the chapter the old enemy that David faced, the Philistines, that he had humiliated when he slew their greatest champion, Goliath, they were waiting and watching. And any moment they saw that David was vulnerable or David may have taken his eye off the ball, maybe celebrating too much becoming king, they were there. They were there. Satan was working, stirring up trouble, stirring up enemies. And throughout David's long reign, for the next 33 years, He'll never be at peace completely. He'll always have to be watchful. He'll always have to be careful. Watching his borders. Watching his diplomacy. Watching the trade routes. Because Satan is there. Trying to destroy his kingdom. Trying to infiltrate his people. Trying to undermine his work. And I like this about David. How wise this chapter leaves us. Of how he handles it. Because we're told in verse 18, the Philistines came and pitched themselves in the valley of Rephraim. Now notice who it is, the Philistines. Who has a 100% success rate against the Philistines? David has. Who killed the greatest Philistine warrior of all time, Goliath? David did. Personally, one to one, he's the greatest warrior of his nation. Leading his armies, he's the greatest general in the history of the nation. More successful than Joshua. Joshua lost at Ai. David never lost at Ai. But yet when David faced this great challenge. First great challenge. From the Philistines. After he becomes king. You'll see the difference between Saul and David. In what happens next. It says. Verse 19. Before he even organized his army. Before he got his little tactical boards down. And arranged his soldiers and his battalions and his regiments. It says this, and David inquired of the Lord. That's David's instinct. Go to God. Now this is is not an ordinary guy talking here. This is a man who's faced a Goliath. This is a man who now has 20 years of experience in war under his belt. Who has the loyalty of the nation behind him. And yet the first instinct when trouble comes, and this is what makes David the man after God's own heart, he goes to God and he seeks God's help. And God gives him the victory. And then verse 22, the Philistines come again the second time. Same place. And it would be very tempting for David to say, well, we've done all the prayer meeting before. (laughs) We've done all the spiritual stuff. And we got the victory and it's the same place. We'll just go out and do the same thing again and Just trust God to give the victory. But he doesn't. David again inquired of the Lord. And what's he doing by saying that? 
in doing that. He's letting the Philistines know. He's letting all the Israelites know. And he's letting God know before him that David's confidence is not in David. It's in David's God. That's what he's doing. You see, when you pray, you don't change God. What happens when you pray? You change. And the more you pray and the more you draw near to God, the more you discover your will becomes conformed to his will. That's why the Lord's Prayer says what? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a time of prayer. It's a prayer that draws us into God's will. And David very wisely is teaching others as well as disciplining himself here by coming the second time to God he's saying it's not about David and David's tactics and David's wisdom and David's charisma it's about David's God he's the one that gives the victory and sure enough when he acknowledges God God says to him you do it differently this time now God could have done it the same way as he did it the last time but he chose a different way why does he choose a different way because he's teaching not just David but the Israelite armies and he's teaching you and I that God sometimes does things differently the second time. Just because your children's Bible club worked a particular way last year and was successful last year and your youth fellowship worked successfully last year with the same people in it doesn't mean it'll be successful this year. Don't be presumptuous. God may do it slightly different. God may bring different people. God may touch different lives. God may raise up different people to serve than he did the time before. And David is learning that lesson and Israel is learning that lesson. And God is teaching David patience and humility and self-God dependence, not self-dependence. And David gets the victory, verse 25. It says, and David did so as the Lord had commanded him. there's, There's this key to David's life again. God's with him. David's obeying God. Seeking God. God speaks, David's following. Every step of the way. And he smote the Philistines from Geba until they came to Gaza. You know, the second time that the Philistines came was a bigger temptation for David than the first time. Because the first time, he could make the argument for prayer. But the second time, people said, well, it's the same group, the same there. Just, just go down and smite them the way we did and trust God. But David's learning. No, no, patience. All those 20 years waiting to become king. Waiting, waiting for God to say, now, we're not wasted. David had learned the secret to the Christian life is God's presence and God's timing. And until you learn those two things, you'll spend your life running from here to here, planning this and planning that, and running into problems after problems after problems, and becoming frustration upon frustration upon frustration. The sooner you learn it, the better. The faster you learn it, the easier it will be. And David was a great man because David let God be great in his life be like him you know often we read these stories as children don't we and we get excited by the colorful accounts we say I want to be like David 
I, I, I want to be chasing the giants and I want to be the one with the crown and on the throne and being successful and famous. And we get caught up in the drama, especially of the human story. And we miss the great hero in this story is not David. It's God working behind the scenes, working through David. And David letting God work through him. And if you want to be like David, you have to live like David. You have to sacrifice like David. You have to have the courage that David had. You have to have the discipline, the patience. You have to be a person who honors God like David did in his choices, in his decisions. Did David make mistakes? Oh, yes, he did. Even in this chapter, we're reading of some of them and what problems he was sowing into his family life with all of these wives and children. Was he a perfect man? No. But his life was characterized by this great statement. He was a man who did the will of God. Acts chapter 7 says, Save for the matter of Uriah and Bathsheba. He sought as best he could in the time that he had to do the will of God. You have to do the same. Learn the lessons of this chapter. Learn the lessons of patience. Learn the lessons of God dependence. Learn the lessons of letting God bring you up and bring you down. Learn the lessons of God using you in his time and in his way. And if you do, if you do, you'll be able to live a life like King David. You may not be as famous as David on earth, but you'll be just as famous in God's kingdom and in God's eyes. Those are the lessons of this wonderful chapter. Learn them today. Let us pray. Father, we thank